0: It's my understanding that like Anheuser and Miller wanted to keep the small beer companies out of business. Am I naive or wrong about that information? Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, the plan needs to be born out of reality and you have to stick with that plan. You have to pivot off of it. don't clock in and clock out. I'm always clocked in. I take every bit of advice anybody's willing to give. that helps me become a better person and a better business person. My name is Jamie Price. I own Graydon Beer Company. We're a brewery located in the panhandle of Florida.
0: How did you get in the brewing company?
1: Well, most of the time for marketing purposes, I tell everybody about my huge affinity for beer and how I discovered beer for the first time, but the reality is that it was born out of necessity. When the economic crisis hit, my wife and I owned a bunch of real estate in the Florida Panhandle that was worth a lot less money than what we bought it for. We had mortgages, we were about to have our first child, and we sat down and had a real good Come to Jesus meeting about what we could do to enhance our life moving forward, and if that included starting a business. So we sat down, we had great conversations about different opportunities that presented itself based on our geographic location, based on our financial situation, and we discussed pretty much everything. And and ultimately, Grayton Beer Company started out as Grayton Beach Bread and Beer Company, and we were going to do local brew pubs along the Florida Panhandle, produce all of the bread, make all of the box lunches for the people that go to the beach and then obviously produce beer. But as I started researching everything, started drawing up a business plan, started asking all the questions of all the people that were willing to have conversations with me, it became pretty obvious that I didn't need to make a bunch of brew pubs or create a bunch of brew pubs. I needed to get into production brewing.
0: This was in 2010, you were saying when you started Great and Beer Company?
1: You know, I started writing the business plan in 2009. I would say Q3, Q4 2009 incorporated in June of 2010. And our first beer hit the market through a third party contract brewery in May of 2011.
0: Let's talk about the real estate that you owned. I mean, were you overhead on all those? I mean, were you going to get go bankrupt? What was the deal with the real estate properties?
1: Well, my wife and I have been fortunate that we've made a pretty good living in the uh, software industry and in payroll software. She and I work for the same company and our income goes up and down at the same levels. We have high together, we have lows together. And that was a low. And it put us in a position to where we were barely able to meet our mortgage obligations. Our real estate holdings at the time, I would say that seventy-five percent of them were underwater. And, you know, it was waking up every day and, and, and looking at a balance sheet is one thing and knowing that we had a legitimate negative net worth at that moment in time. But looking at it and understanding what the cash flow situation was and how were we gonna pay the mortgages. What were we going to do? And once again, my wife was pregnant. We were about to have a child. So it really kind of brought everything into reality where it wasn't just she and I that we were fighting for. We were making decisions based on a little one that was about to show up.
0: And how many properties or what was the estimated value of all those properties together?
1: We had about $4 million worth of property at that moment in time it was probably worth, I would say, mortgages for $4 million. The property was worth probably in the neighborhood of $3 million.
0: And so you're i guess you're a million negative at that point it looks like and why don't we backtrack to maybe three years before that did you feel like on top of the world because you're buying those properties with your extra money
1: absolutely we moved to the beach we very comfortable in our lifestyle uh, we were making good money my wife had already invested in a couple of properties and flipped a couple of properties so we recognized some gains or she had recognized some gains own some properties. And it just put us in a position where we were willing to go out on a limb and invest, not understanding that we were about to be
0: hit by a credit crisis. And at that point in time, were, were you about 30 years old or so? Yeah, I was around 30. I would imagine that I would feel very confident. Okay, like right before the crash, you're feeling great about everything. And then once you hear about the real estate prices going down, you said you were making good money. Can we get an idea of how much money you were making at your other job? I guess both of y'all were at the same company?
1: We made anywhere from... 250000 to a million dollars every year from the time we were about 25 up until present.
0: I could see that. I feel very successful at that point in time. And then after you got done, you know, making this money and then the downturn hit, what was your reaction? How were you feeling? Talk to us about a little bit about, um, Thinking about starting a beer company. What emotionally did you feel like? Did you think you could actually make it through that?
1: Well, you know, a lot of people have uh, had experiences in fluctuations in the economy. And being 30 years old, you know, I'd never really paid attention to it. I hit that point of making enough money to where we lived in a nice house, we were driving nice cars, we were able to go on the vacations that we wanted to. We felt very lucky to be in the position that we were in. We felt like we had uh, fought get there and we were definitely peaking when we started moving towards the real estate side as a stream of income for us. We felt very confident because the market that we we're in was growing pretty quickly. We're in a resort destination, so we felt comfortable with that. You know, at the same time being a destination location, most of the people that visit where we live are on vacation. They they feel great. They're happy. They're spending money. It's an incredible environment to be in. If people ever get a chance to live in a resort community. It's, it's actually pretty exciting because you're surrounded by people that are on vacation and peaking in happiness all the time. So we felt real good about where we were. We thought we were living the American dream, moving down the right path. And then when we got hit, when the economy uh, started tanking, we were naive enough to feel like we could get through it. I mean, there's times of fear, but the reality was we knew that if we put our turtle shell on and made sound decisions, that we would come out of the other side of it fine.
0: The way to get out of it, you thought, was by starting your own company?
1: Well, you know, it's multiple streams of income. That was the key. I didn't know how long we were going to be in a, in a depressed state. And it was coming up with uh, various ideas. I mean, the beer company wasn't the only idea that we came up with. I'm not going to share the rest of the ideas with you because I still think they're all viable, but it was coming up with different ideas. Once again, multiple streams of income, not tying both of us to the same stream of income. If that makes sense, if we're both on the same roller coaster and we're up and down at the same time, let's find another one that can offset it. If we're on a down or if we're on a high, maybe we can catch them both at a high, on a high at the same time. So those were conscious decisions that we made. Those conversations were pretty straightforward. They're easy to have if you open your eyes and you look at the situation. You know the situation that you're in personally, from a business standpoint, from a financial standpoint, balance sheet, and income statement, and then what it looks like moving forward. The beer company is great, and I, I truly do love beer, and I loved beer before we ever started it, or I, I would have never have gone down this route. But it could have been any business, and we could have chosen any of the ones that we made the decision to open at that moment in time. And I believe that we would have fought just as hard and we would have been just
0: as successful. How much money does it take to get a beer company started? (laughs) At the beginning or to date? (laughs) Let's talk about the beginning and and how you got started.
1: Absolutely. When I started, we used a third-party brewery, like I told you earlier, to produce our beer. And that took very little overhead on the front end. I looked at it more as a marketing expense. I wouldn't make any capital expenditures on equipment. I was investing in a third party to make our beer. I had to get the design a logo and packaging. I had to work with the brewery on the two recipes that I wanted and how their equipment could handle them. I would never suggest that anybody go down that route, but we really started in earnest in 2014. So we brewed our, our own beer for the first time on January 1, 2014. That investment was around $2.5 million. So we had to buy all of the equipment to brew the beer, all of the equipment to package the beer in bottles and kegs. We had to do a lot of retrofitting in the building. That was the the big leap. And we use the contract. This is a great lesson for everybody is We dipped our toe in the water to understand the industry, to understand what it looked like if we actually made the big investment and started producing ourselves. And we spent that the first couple of years really honing our skills, our understanding of the industry. And once again, not only for the justification, but to make sure that we were making the right decisions when we did start our own brewery.
0: What happened between basically 2010 and 2014? Because it sounds like you were just saying 2014 is when you actually got money to start rebuilding the property and doing the brewery?
1: No, the timeline is 2000. So April, 2011, we started brewing beer in Melbourne, Florida at the third-party brewery. That beer was available in the market in May of 2011. So between May of 2011 and January 1 of 2014, we used a third-party brewery to make our beer. The process of you know taking the building, retrofitting it, so it could handle the needs that we had as a production brewing facility. It took about a year and a half. We had to cut concrete, put drainage in. All of the equipment was spec ordered. There's manufacturing lead times. They come in at various times. So, you know, throughout 2013, we were receiving equipment, installing, plumbing, getting it ready to go for that first brew that we did on January 1, 2014.
0: Did you have issues, I imagine, with the third-party brewery?
1: Well, we had issues with quality more than anything else. They didn't produce the most consistent and high-quality beer that was in our parameters, but we were, you know, in that process of testing the market, we had established relationships with retail partners where we had to service them and probably made some concessions on the consistency that we would never do today, just so we could make sure that, once again, we were servicing the market that we had built. And I mentioned it earlier, and I think it's... I want to say it again, is that the process of us being with a third party brewery taught me a tremendous amount of what to do and what not to do. I would say that, you know, not letting a beer go out our door that doesn't meet our specifications is something that is absolutely a number one at our facility now.
0: What not to do? What would you not do? I guess same thing. But is there any other tips of what to do or what not to do when you're looking for a third party brewery?
1: Well, I would never use a third-party brewer unless I controlled the entire process and I had my own employees at that brewery. I wouldn't use them because there's just so many variables that go into the process, the scientific process of taking grain to glass to making it a beer that I don't trust anybody except the people that I've surrounded myself with.
0: And how about your financial situation at home? Because you re- originally started this company, was it solely because you wanted another income stream or was it more kind of a hobby or something for fun as well?
1: It was solely for another income stream. I didn't need more hobbies. I enjoy playing golf, I enjoy traveling, but you know, I always had a desire to be an entrepreneur. From very early, I studied accounting in high school or in uh, college. And I'll never forget one of our professors asked one day, what do you want to grow up to be? And everybody in the room, pretty much some field in accounting that they wanted to do. And I laughed at everybody. I said, I would never practice accounting. I want to create businesses. waited a little bit later in life to do that. I would say out of necessity, I would have given anything to have started a business in my early 20s when I had all the confidence in the world and didn't have a whole lot of family obligations.
0: At home, were you feeling pressure financially, or or were y'all still okay? Had you been making it through the downturn with real estate? Because I just want to know your pressure to make something successful here. Were you making money right away? Absolutely
1: not. The key for us is that we always had the internal pressures. We were always call it. We were touching the third rail, coming damn close to touching the third rail. We woke up every single day, and it was. Trying to figure out what we were going to do that day to continue to move the bar forward, we wanted to, we needed money. We specifically, when we were writing the business plan, you know, we were living paycheck to paycheck. We didn't have a whole lot of savings that we could uh, fall back on. It was a pressure situation. So the company was built out of necessity. It wasn't built out of chasing a dream and trying to figure out what new hobby I needed.
0: And how long did it take to actually make money?
1: Well, we started making money immediately. In 2014, we produced enough beer and sold enough beer to eclipse the million dollar mark. In year one, in revenue, we lost money. Our net income was, was negative, but we had generated the positive momentum. In the business plan, when I wrote it, I was pretty conservative on my estimates. And I wrote it with my eyes wide open and, and understanding that we were gonna lose money the first couple of years.
0: Well, what do you do when you lose money and you don't have extra money?
1: Well, when we put the capital structure in place that included all of the equipment, it also included the overhead that we would need to go from startup to profitability. So we padded the bank accounts. And and when I looked at it, I always knew that it was great to have big balances, but I knew that those balances would go down pretty quickly. We had enough runway to where we could get from startup to profitability.
0: And at this time, were you doing this full time or did you still have the other job with your uh, wife?
1: We still do that. The software business is another stream of income for us. So we spend time on that. The brewery is full-time. I mean, it's, it's way more than 40 hours a week, but the way that I operate, I guess, is that, you know, there's no, I don't clock in and clock out. I'm always clocked in. If you take take all the hours that I'm awake during the week, the bulk of those are spent working in some form or fashion as it relates to my
0: businesses. She didn't work with Great and Beer at all. She was still doing, I know you said it's still there. Does it sound like you work part-time still with the software company?
1: I do. She works full-time. Her involvement with the brewery is, she would say that she's a massive asset to the brewery, but the reality is she only consults when I ask her questions.
0: I'm just trying to think, when was the first year you were actually able to make net income and I guess, have all this hard work kind of come into fruition?
1: Well, this year is the first year we were profitable. We've been break-even the last two years, and this year we are busting into net income, with the next year being a real banner year for us. We've already run our 2018 budgets, and I'm real excited about it. I'm excited about the future, excited about the growth that we're expecting. I'm excited about the addition of another stream of income to the brewery that we're adding. There's a lot of different
0: things that we're excited about. Was there a point in time you ever wanted to give up? Because it sounds like to me, it might be difficult to keep going, even if you're seeing growth you know, in your company, but if you're not necessarily like getting the net income to come home after putting in all those hours.
1: No, we've exceeded all expectations from the business plan. And that's the key. Once again, there's a lot of keys, but how you can mentally how I mentally keep up with the daily grind is that I wrote the business plan I've studied it you know I vetted it pretty hard and I ran all of the financials and the projections some things we've hit on some things we've exceeded and some things we've fallen short on but the reality is there was a set of expectations on the front end that we were going to have to go through a downtime to get to the high time we're right I call it the fulcrum we're on that fulcrum right now and it's tilting in our favor on the net income side. So we're extremely excited about that. And what we're doing is nothing that wasn't expected. So if you go into a situation like we've been in, in the past and that we're in now, and that we're going to be in the future, as long as the expectations are set on the front end, then it makes waking up every single day and fighting for that prize or whatever that prize is, or profitability or growth, it makes it pretty easy. I make decisions every day that I had no idea that I would have to make, but the reality is we measure it at the end of every year, what the bottom line looks like. And if the bottom line is close to what the expectations were, then it's a thumbs up from me. So I don't get down. I've never found myself in this business saying, I want to walk away from it. Or what if I sell it tomorrow and, just, and move on? I don't think about that. I wake up every single day and absolutely take on the tasks that I have and try to be the best that I can be.
0: Can you look back and tell us about some of the failures or hurdles you've had to overcome and what you might have done differently now when starting the brewery?
1: One of the failures was 2014. We hit our number, but that was the first year I'd ever managed people. Having never never done that, I, I didn't really understand the human interaction with people that were employed by me. I had to fire a person for the first time. I let emotion step in the way. I was very vocal with emotion tied to it, and I always tell everybody that if I could take 2014. 14 and ball it up and sell it to people, I think a lot of people would buy it because the amount of personal growth in that year was pretty exponential. And the bulk of it wasn't positive. It was negative. It was failures. It was failures of human interaction. It was not necessarily making the right decisions. From a financial standpoint, from a production standpoint, not making the right decisions on how to spend my time within the brewery, with balancing that with family, it was all fail. And I woke up in January 2015, I looked myself in the mirror and said, what did you do wrong? You know, is that being able to define your, your own person that allows you to be the best person that you can be. And I had to have a come to Jesus conversation with myself. I didn't need people around me telling me that I was an asshole. I knew I was an asshole. So being able to take that, leverage my ability to self-reflect is something that I I had to put in play immediately. That was a massive failure. I've hired some people in the past that I knew weren't right candidates uh, for big roles within my company. You know, they came in and they created a toxic environment. I didn't necessarily think that they would cause a toxic environment, but I knew that the signs were there. The telltales were pointing in that direction. Ultimately, I hired people that were bigger assholes than I was. Drove the culture of our business down. And specifically in our industry, we're a production facility. We're a manufacturing company that has a consumer good. It's not necessarily services based, but it is something that I believe ultimately should be driven by a very positive attitude. I think that plays out in everything that we do from packaging to naming beers to how wholesalers view us, how retailers view us, and how consumers view us. I believe it's that personal interaction. And I hired assholes.
0: And would you give a suggestion on how to handle that or how you handled it before versus how you handle it now? Because I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs think about the first time managing people, coming up with the business and you're doing all this research and you're just trying to get everything to work. The last thing on the plate is usually management. But could you tell us how you handled it almost more specifically before and how you would handle it today? Absolutely. I was scared
1: to death on human interaction with employees. Once again, having never done it, it was me... I was in a position where I was hiring people that had a tremendous amount of experience in a field that I needed that I didn't understand. That scared the hell out of me. And when I was sitting across the table from strong candidates in marketing and brewing, I looked at them and said, this person is going to bring a tremendous value to our company. They're going to bring something that we don't necessarily have right now. But the reality is, if I took a second to look at the personalities who they were, what their core values were, to see if they were aligned with mine, to see if they could take the vision that I have and had at the time and have today with our company, take that vision and help me expand on it, I would have made different decisions. Once I hired people that I wouldn't hire today, I had a hard time firing them because I was, there's a tremendous amount of fear of conflict. I didn't feel comfortable sitting across the table from somebody that had 30 years of experience in a marketing company and saying, you're fired. Pretty hard pill to swallow, but it's something that helped me grow exponentially. Having gone through those processes, number one, I wouldn't hire some of the people that I've hired before. So now when I interview people, I'm able to cut to the chase, get to their value system, understand who they are, and understand if they can add value to me. If I do hire somebody because they pass that interview process, if they in turn do not perform at the level that I think they shouldn't perform, I am more apt to fire them immediately. And I don't mind the controversy. Because I know the longer I let someone that isn't helping us advance, stay within our organization, which is still a small company, the more that they're going to have a negative impact on the overall.
0: And how many people are there today and what's the revenue like? We have 27
1: employees today and we will exceed 4 million in revenue this year.
0: I just want to get a feel of the environment as you're growing. Because you had mentioned something about a toxic environment. You talked about a come to Jesus moment. Was there a point in time you just realized you were having that environment? And what did you do to fix it?
1: Well, it's actually happened twice. We got through 2014. And at the end of 2014, I realized that Our culture wasn't going down the path that I wanted it to go down. That included me, but we ended up hiring people from the outside to come in and take over different elements of our business. And we had to let go two or three people that weren't aligned with where we were going moving forward. So that was the first time that we went through that process. The second time we went through it was, you know, more recently, we evaluated everybody internally and figured out exactly what we needed. And I ended up letting a couple of people go. We're in the process of hiring a lot of people right now. So we let three go. And today, as we speak, we have eight positions open within our company. And by the end of 2017, we'll eclipse 40 employees.
0: Did you have a outside mentor or peers that you could talk to, to figure this out? Like, I don't know if you just came up, figure it out yourself that you're having this toxic environment and that was the thing holding you back. Or if you got, had some leadership outside the company that was advising you.
1: Oh uh, no, that's coming up with it on my own. It doesn't take a genius to look around and, and have conversations with people and, You know people internally and figure out who the good apples are and who the bad apples are if you're fully engaged if i was fully engaged in the company which i was then walking around and working with people and you know dealing with them on a daily basis It's pretty obvious who needed to go, who needed to stay. It's not that I don't lean on people. The first time I ever fired somebody, I called my best friend who has about 2,000 people that he manages and he hires and buyers people every day and asked him how to do it. And, And he told me, he said, you know, the first time's always the hardest, but you get used to it. He coached me through that process, but yeah. It's one of those things, if you can't see it, you're not the right man for the job. And I own the company. I'm the president and CEO of the company. So I've got to be that person. And if I wasn't, I would just be the owner of the company and I'd be sitting back letting everybody else run it.
0: And looking at it now, when you hired those people, if you're looking back, do you think it happened right away or it just happened over time where maybe they became toxic? Obviously, hopefully when you're hiring, it's not that way, but I don't know if some people start influencing other people to not work as hard or if, there, if there's other things that we're talking about here with the environment and how to fix it.
1: Well, ultimately, you hire somebody. I've always felt like I'm completely honest with and transparent with people. When I interview people, they're interviewing me as well. They need to understand what they're getting into. So, on the front end, typically when you hire someone, they come in and they they tend to fall in line. They're learning. They're learning the culture. They're learning the processes. They're learning everything that our company is doing, which is completely different than you know what our fellow brewers are doing and other breweries are doing. So, when we brought them in, we were able to. They all fell in line with the culture, with the processes, they helped enhance it. Even some of these toxic people brought a tremendous amount of knowledge and practices that we have implemented and we still use today. But when their true colors start to shine through, it starts to be pretty obvious pretty quick. There's the negative talk amongst their peers, and you can see it start to snowball. And there's really, I'll never forget, I had a guy that was our director of production. And I sat him down and I explained to him my situation in 2014 and how I realized that I was acting like an asshole and the self evaluation. And I sat him down and I said, you know, I did it. I felt like if I could do it, anybody could do it. I explained to him what I did, how I defined it, and then how I ultimately implemented those practices. I gave him a shot at it, but this guy could not turn the corner. He just he showed up and nobody got along with him. He was extremely toxic. Obviously, that led to parting ways, but what a great lesson that just because I can do it, because I can define something and implement it, doesn't mean that the person sitting across the table from me can do it. It's just like me.
0: Kind of transitioning, I guess, maybe more out of the the negative aspects of, you know, trying to turn around a company culture because it's important that I appreciate you sharing that because sometimes people act like it's all easy and there's no hard times when starting a business. But when you're looking back, what's been some of the key turning points or something that's really helped you grow versus other breweries or that maybe that you never really thought of would have helped you grow so much?
1: Well, I'd say that the number one thing that has helped us succeed is that we dominate our home market. The key to that, that success is having phenomenal retail partners, we drew the business plan up, but we saw the sales coming more from a regional standpoint, but the local community really bought into what we were doing. And I didn't predict that. I spend all my time going into accounts and shaking people's hands and thanking them on a pretty regular basis because without them, we wouldn't have been as successful as we are. Because when I drew the plan up and I had the Southeast United States as a footprint to sell beer, and I expected there to be a pretty good even distribution among the big cities and in the mid-size cities. And ultimately, we didn't have the amount of success in that region, but we took our home market, which I thought would be fairly good, and all of a sudden blew it up. The net is that we sell the exact same amount of beer that we thought about doing. That's awesome, but it also affords us a, a tremendous challenge where we're currently enhancing our distribution network, our go-to-market strategy in our entire territory, which is the Southeast United States.
0: So you just brew all your own beer and are you bottling it and trying to sell it in grocery stores? Are you trying to sell it at bars? Where do you sell it? We brew all of our own beer at our production facility. We bottle it, can it,
1: and put it in kegs. So we sell it to on-premise and off-premise accounts all across the Southeast. So that's on-premise consumption is bars and restaurants. Off-premise is retail locations. We have a distribution network across the Southeast that services those retail partners
0: what percentage is like on-premise versus off-premise? We do
1: about 50-50.
0: Is that typical? No, we get have a lot
1: more on-premise. Our on-premise consumption percentage is higher than most breweries.
0: I guess you had no background in this. What's been the, the biggest challenges of trying to get in these, I guess, grocery stores or on-premise facilities?
1: Well, I would say that I don't think that we have abutted a whole lot of challenges on that because we have sold 100% of our production capacity up until this year. We accidentally, going out and dominating markets and retail partners, we didn't really set it up to say, we need to go have a long conversation with a big box retail chain and figure out how they're gonna carry our beer. We just backed into them carrying our beer. Now that we have production capacity that is pretty great, we're more focused now on the proactive approach to go to market. And I wanted to tell you this, when I thought about this interview, I thought it was a pretty interesting piece that you need to understand, I think your listeners would wanna understand, is we have two streams of income at our facility. One is through our distribution network, which is once again, the Southeast. Through that distribution network, we have retail accounts. The other is we sell beer directly to consumers at our tap room, at our production facility. And then we're adding a brew pub in uh, 2018. So in Q1 2018, our brew is gonna come online, which adds another stream of income. But on the production side, that's what we're working right now on enhancing, being able to clearly communicate with our wholesalers Our retail partners and ultimately our consumers that's an exciting area of our growth strategy so the proactive approach now working with retail partners falls directly in line with that
0: you said you kind of backed into your first sale with the people carrying i guess your beer but could you tell us about your actual first sale like how did you know how to sell your beer
1: well i'm I'm a salesman by nature so and by profession so (laughs) selling the beer wasn't that hard the first person i had to sell on the beer was my wife so i had to get past that one Our first wholesaler that we signed up was our local wholesaler. You know, the process to get from having this concept to having a wholesaler carry my beer was actually pretty interesting. Our beer was actually in production in South Florida, and I didn't have a wholesaler in my home market to pick up the beer.
0: And what's a wholesaler in case someone doesn't know?
1: A wholesaler is, with beer, we operate in a three-tier system. We're the manufacturer. We sell the beer to a wholesaler, and the wholesaler sells the beer to retail accounts. We can't take our beer and take it down to Walmart and sell it to them directly. We have to use a middle person, which is a wholesaler. We have two big local wholesalers. One is the Miller Coors wholesaler and one is the Budweiser wholesaler. And I would worked with the Miller Coors wholesaler owner through the entire process and thought that I would be doing business with him. He really mentored me, gave me a tremendous amount of insight into the three-tier system The beer was in production. He and I were hammering out the details behind a distribution agreement that we were going to sign. We were two weeks away from receiving beer, and I went and met with his general manager and their team of managers. There was 10 of them and one of me. And I sat in a conference room and uh, gave them my strategy, my go-to-market, everything that I had done from the beginning in terms of writing a business plan, understanding it, understanding our go-to-market strategy, but also with the caveat that you have to take a chance on me. I'm using a third-party brewery to make our beer right now. I'm doing low volumes. I don't need to go out there and try to dominate accounts. I just need you guys to pick it up and be a partner. And their general manager, uh, he freaked out. I mean, he started rubbing his head, turned red. We were about 30 minutes into the meeting and I'm sitting here trying to sell them on this concept of going out there and selling my beer I had 120 barrels of beer that were in production that was in fermentation that was about to get bottled and kegged and shipped up to them and he looked at me and said I just can't do it I'll never be able to sell the amount of beer that you're sending me right now I thought that his short-sightedness being at the top of his food chain being the general manager would ultimately lead to us not being the best that we could be in the market I needed a wholesale partner that believed in us I told him, I just stopped the meeting. Once again, I'm in the middle of a sales pitch. I stopped the meeting and say, hey guys, I honestly don't think that we need to have any further conversations at this juncture and cut the meeting off, walked out of the building. And the first phone call I made was to the owner of the distributorship and got his voicemail and asked him to give me a call back. The second phone call I made was to the other distributorship, the one that I currently use and said, I'd never met anybody there. And I told them, you guys have never met me. I need to talk to the person that makes decisions on what suppliers you guys pick up. And I got their president and he said, we'll come over and meet with you at our other warehouse and have a conversation about what you're doing. I met with him and he said, where do you stand right now? And I said, I have 120 barrels of beer that are on their way in a week now, I need a partner. And we hammered out an agreement in two days. Now that distributor this year in 2017 will make over $2 million in revenue from us and next year he'll eclipse $3 million in revenue from us. It worked out for him, it worked out for me.
0: You don't actually necessarily need a wholesaler to go to the distributor, am I missing that? I guess maybe I lost you between wholesaler and distributor. Okay, I'm sorry, a wholesaler and a distributor are the same thing. Oh, okay. I gotcha. So it's just another one. Okay. So there's other ones other than Anheuser-Busch and Miller. So uh, absolutely. There's, there's independence out there, you know, Anheuser-Busch,
1: the manufacturer is not Anheuser-Busch, the distribution network or the wholesaler. Those are third parties that own those Budweiser makes their beer. in I think seven locations in the United States, they ship it out to their wholesalers, which are independently owned and those people are responsible for ultimately distributing that beer to retail accounts.
0: Well, it's my understanding that like Anheuser and Miller wanted to keep the small beer companies out of business? Is am I naive or wrong about that information? Um, no comment. I've got three children, man. I don't need
1: any. I, lost I don't, okay, I, I don't I need any black hawks flying around my my house right now.
0: Because <laughs> I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, and I know there's some local breweries here that I've just heard through their grapevine. I think I've heard about laws or whatever to try to keep that more. that's
1: funny that's pretty funny man i'm sorry to interrupt you but yeah no we there's a lot of common ground but there's a lot of disagreements on the state and federal level we spend a lot of time being based in florida we spend a lot of time in tallahassee lobbying for things that are in our favor and then in dc we have national organization that lobbies for us up there anheuser-busch Miller Coors or InBev and Miller and Molson and everybody else, there's consolidation and selling all the time. Ultimately, the producers of beer, the wholesalers of beer, and then the small producers of beer like ourselves, we always have different ideas of what we think should happen.
0: And I'm trying to think, so what's the percentage of small brewery to maybe Anheuser or the Miller as far as beer consumption? I
1: think the national average is 13% today. In the Southeast, it's 3%. That's the reason that I love our playing field, because we have a tremendous amount of growth potential between that 3 and 13%.
0: So nationally, you're saying most small breweries is 13%, but Southeast is... 13%. Yeah, yeah. Small independents are
1: 13%. They call them domestics, but domestics and imports make up the 87%.
0: What are the kind of laws you kind of hit on it, it sounded like, but the things that you are discussing when we're talking about these laws coming to, when you said the federal and state level, I guess they're just trying to keep you all from having your own distribution, which how are they able to do that? Well, the
1: three-tier system has been in place since Prohibition. And what happens in the three-tier system is it's the separation of the manufacturer, the wholesaler distributor, and the retail account. You can't play within multiple tiers. So as a, someone that, Budweiser, as an example, cannot go out and open up retail locations, and Budweiser can't go out and do their own distribution. But the reality is some states have changed those laws to where they can actually do that now. So we're governed by two sets of of laws or statutes. One is franchise. That is, if you sign up as a manufacturer of beer with a wholesaler, then you're governed by your state's franchise laws. And the other one is is distribution. And right now it's the three-tier system in the state of Florida specifically to where we have to sell our beer to a distributor. And ultimately they can, they're the ones that sell it to retail accounts. Now the one loophole that we do have is that we have the ability to sell beer through our tap room. And then we're also building a brew pub. So we'll have the ability to sell it through there.
0: How much is a distributor marketing it up to the retailer?
1: Well, the historical number is 30, 30, 30. So we market up 30, Wholesaler marks it up 30. Retail account marks it up 30. But now those numbers fluctuate pretty big time. And each distributor has a different method and percentage. It varies by supplier. So mine's completely different than some other brewery that is carried by the exact same wholesaler.
0: So basically, we'd just be saying rough math. Maybe you'd be knocking off thirty percent of what it actually costs on giving it to the consumer with your no, own. No, 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 not at all,
1: not at all. So the math on that's pretty easy. So I'm knocking off the thirty percent on the wholesaler, but then the markup that retail does too.
0: Okay, so six. Yeah,
1: so it's, it's it's actually a little bit more than that. Believe it or not, if you're going out and buying a seven dollar pint, that's a pretty massive markup. If you're buying a six pack for eight ninety nine or nine nine ninety nine, it's not nearly as high.
0: Okay so yeah I guess when you have your local pub I was thinking you would mark it up 30% just for your profit but really you're just trying to you're knocking those down and really saving them like we said a little bit more than 60% it sounds like in general by being able to sell your own pub Well
1: yeah absolutely but but ultimately at the brew pub we'll price everything in accordance with our local area because we're not trying to undercut our retail partners we want to be okay. right line with
0: them And why was this three tier system put in place after prohibition Um I- <laughs> I didn't know if you knew why, because it just sounds interesting that uh, they keep forcing you to try to keep it this way. We can Wikipedia if you don't know. I I I was curious. You know, I know. I don't necessarily agree with
1: it. Ultimately, this is a little known fact. The alcohol in the United States is governed by the Treasury Department. We're not FDA. It's all about the money. And ultimately, if you chase the money down, that is the origins of the three-tier system. Now, the argument that our opponents on the state level or federal level, their argument is completely different. It's more of a moral three-tier system as opposed to a financial three-tier system.
0: All right, well, for those of us who... Didn't know much about brewing, which is me included. That's a lot of knowledge. I think that lasts 15 or 20 minutes. So I appreciate you walking us through slowly on it. But looking back basically on your entrepreneur's journey, is, is there any last thing that you'd want to leave the listeners with as far as if you were starting your own brewery or own company? Um, kind of, I guess, just in general, the most important things looking back.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's a number one is, you know, have a great plan, but be ready and willing to pivot off of that plan. Being able to recognize where you are at that moment in time and make sound decisions for your future. I think that's paramount. I mean, you know what they say about best laid plans, You know, the other thing is just to make sure that the capital is in place. A lot of companies start thinking that they're going to jump into it. They're going to be profitable in year one. They're going to be rolling. You know, I got getting the Bentley in year three, flying private in year four. But the reality is that, you know, the plan needs to be born out of reality and you have to stick with that plan. You have to pivot off of it, but you have to make sure that the money's there to get you from startup to profitability.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on. Is there any question that I should have asked that I didn't now looking back as well?
1: You know, one of the challenges... For me, especially in what we do, we live on an island. You know, once again, I, I mentioned earlier that we were in a resort community, so we don't have brewers and lab technicians that are growing on trees around us. And, you know, that's one of the things that surprised me the most about what I did is that, you know, I been written a business plan and then ultimately ex- execute on that business plan is I never really took into account the number of employees that I would need that were specialty employees that didn't exist in our region. So I hire people from New York and California, Colorado, North Carolina all the time. And having to identify those people and move them to our community is a bigger challenge than I ever dreamed it would be.
0: How do you think you're going to be able to figure that out?
1: The world is getting flatter every single day. With technology, we're able to pinpoint specific candidates. Then ultimately, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the United States. I think we had the most beautiful beaches in the United States, for sure. When we get people to our location, it's easy to sell them on the environment and the lifestyle, but it's a matter of getting them there. You have third, fourth, fifth generation people from Pennsylvania that you're trying to move out of their comfort zone and into a utopia. It gets pretty hard, but with flights and everything being a little bit more affordable these days and communication being what it is, it makes it easier for people to, to move away from their homes, but it is a challenge.
0: Yes, you sell them on the no income tax.
1: That's always a good thing. But typically, when you're hiring a 25 year old, they don't even understand what income tax is anyway. All they care about is the girls that are wearing uh, bikinis on the uh, beautiful beaches. Or the females that we hire, the beautiful guys running up and down the beach playing volleyball. It's something that is very much attractive to the younger generation. And maybe we catch their brilliance just for a few years. And and I'm cool with that. You know, I I don't expect people to come work for us and, you know, spend the rest of their lives, build a family where we are. I I hope they do. I hope they're excited to do that. But if I can leverage their knowledge and what they bring to the table in a short window, I'm that much better for it. I mean, we've got guys that have worked for us that are head brewers, now for two of the biggest breweries in the Southeast. And with that in the United States, that's pretty cool. I mean, they, they walk through our facility and end up working for other places. You know, it starts to, makes me proud. At least we leveraged them for the time we had them.
0: That makes sense. And you're obviously a salesman. You need to know how to sell those guys on how to get down here. I guess I was going to say, if someone was looking for a job or wanted to say thank you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, the easiest way is
1: info at greatonbeer.com, And that's G-R-A-Y-T-O-N. B-E-E-R.com. That's our uh, catch-all and everything that comes in there that is directed towards me uh, gets sent over. So yeah, I'd love to hear from people if they're looking for jobs, if they have uh, family members, hell, if they have any advice, you know, that's that's one thing is I'll take, I take every every bit of advice anybody's willing to give. that helps me become a better person and a better business person.
0: And I think the people listening feel that same way because that's why they're listening, right? So uh, thank you, Jamie, for coming on and sharing your story. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Millionaire Interviews. Be on the lookout for episode 69, where your host, that's me by the way, is interviewed by his brother, Walker Peak. If you want a refresher on Walker's company, then go back and check out episode 6. As always, thanks again for being a subscriber to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Almighty.